following message is from a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. It's good to see you guys. A lot of familiar faces, lots of new faces. Your church keeps growing. Every time I come, it's, it's a source of joy for me to see. Uh, as Pastor Peter said, I am Steve's older brother, but everyone believes that Steve is my older brother. And at this stage of our lives, I'm very happy to keep that going. So you can think of me as the younger brother. This morning, I want to bring a message that I think is critically needed for the church to hear today. Because what I'm sensing is that we are in a season of the church where almost all the focus is on a horizontal level. And that's kind of, uh, it's part of our whole culture right now. Everybody is looking across at other people and deciding how they feel about the world, about life, entirely on a horizontal plane. And that's where you see all the divisions. That's where you see the strongest passions is how I feel about you, how you feel about me, how I feel about them, how I feel about us. And that has filtered right into the church as well. Most of the distress we feel, most of the tension, most of the anger is entirely happening on a horizontal plane. Some people, of course, still have a, a vertical break. But what the church needs to see today is a fresh vision of God himself. Because very often, God is the one who gets lost in the shuffle of trying to do church, to be church. It is God we most need to see. He's the only one who truly follows us home from church into the life we live day to day. And if God is, doesn't factor prominently into our psyche, into who we see ourselves to be, if he's not a real person, a real presence in our lives, then our Christian life becomes something other than what is described in Scripture. Let me ask you something. When you see something amazing, what's the first thing you do? Come on, tell me. You pull this out, right? I was watching this movie, Prey. Do you guys know this movie? Prey, it's about, it's, it's one of the Predator series, but the Predator comes during the, the Old West days and, and visits a Comanche tribe tps and everything and so this girl is looking at this spaceship kind of like cruising over the clouds and my first crazy thought was you should take a picture of that because she's going to go and try to describe what she saw to the other people in her village and i'm like you should take a picture of that and i thought she can't take a picture of it they don't they didn't have camera phones <laughs> in the 1800s but that's my first impulse whenever i see something amazing is not to look at it but to record it right and you do that. You go to the Grand Canyon, but there's certain things that you see that are at a scale that even after you shoot the picture, what do you do? You take the picture, maybe you capture video, and then you bring it home and you show people. And you go, look, look, like, I, I can't describe you. Just look at this. And they look at it and they go, yeah. I, you know, you, you show someone like my wife a picture of the Grand Canyon. She's like, oh, there's a big hole. <laughs> and you're like, no, you don't understand. It moved me. And there are times when you realize that a photo or video or even verbal description cannot do justice. It might capture what you saw, but it cannot capture what you experienced. 
That's why I think it's a great tragedy that you go to a majestic site and 90% of the people the entire time are just on their phones. It's like you could take that home in a picture, sure, but you're here right now. What you can't take home is the experience you're missing because you're trying to record it. And there are times when we are going through something so profound, we know already no attempt to describe it will be enough. I think John, the Apostle John, receiving this apocalyptic vision of the future, had such an experience. And that's what's recorded for us in the book of Revelation. I know it's a scary, confusing book for a lot of us. It is for me too. But the vision he's being shown is a vision of what is to come. And he's struggling. He's struggling with the words of someone in the first century to describe something that is timeless, infinite, and you can already tell he's not going to be able to do it justice. There are times when I'm going to preach a message and I'm, I'm so moved by an idea, a truth, and I'm trying to write the words and I'm like, nothing is enough. I can't really get people to feel what I just felt. I'm trying so hard with words and it's not enough. Have you ever had a feeling like that where no way to tell someone what you feel, what you've experienced? And so in Revelation 4, we get to a part of this vision where John is treated to a view of this incredible space, and it's referred to as the throne room of God. And what he sees essentially is a portal, right? A portal, like a dimensional portal. And I know that sounds really goofy, but I really believe this is a dimensional portal recorded in Scripture. You can send me all kinds of strange emails later if you want to. But I, I really believe. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So in a sense, it's not just a vision like a movie reel playing in his head, but it's a portal that opens, and he's invited to step into this reality to literally experience it, to see it for himself and record what he has seen. Most of us think of heaven as a place because we're embodied creatures. We think in geographical space-time, like where is heaven? Is it a place we go to? But it's also helpful to think of heaven as a reality, a dimension more than a destination. Heaven is a reality happening right now all around us, but it's inaccessible most of the time to us. And this portal opens up so that John is able to see that in this realm where God reigns without sin, without barrier, without any hesitation, this is what is going on in the immediate presence of God. That has huge implications for our lives here, even though we're cut off from some of that. It's important for us to realize what John is being shown. This is God's reality. The world we live in is not the only reality God knows. He also knows a reality in which he is perfectly worshipped, perfectly obeyed 24-7. And yet he crosses over and interacts with us all the time. In Celtic Christianity, there is this concept, this phrase, thin places. Have any of you heard of this? This phrase, thin places. Because the Celtic Christians imagined like the spiritual realm or heaven was like this dimension above us, and then earth was this dimension below. 
and it was separated by a membrane that we couldn't really pierce, a distance. But there were places on earth where God so often moved, where he revealed himself, where the majesty or the spiritual history of the place was so rich that they call them thin places because the barrier between the spiritual realm and the physical realm was this thin, where you could glimpse and experience the power and presence of God and of, of the supernatural far more readily than in many other places. And Barnabas Landing on Keats Island is such a place for me. I shot this picture from my favorite spot on the island. I've had the privilege of going to this island lots of times. It's a place where I've done a lot of ministry, and it holds a very special place in my heart. I would say nearly every square foot of that island has been prayed over for decades by faithful Christians who have begged God to reveal himself. And I've had some of the most profound spiritual awakenings. I've experienced supernatural healing in this place. It is one of the most special places on this earth for me. It's a thin place where it's not hard to imagine that God is real and he interacts with us all the time. You remember back in verse 1, it says, after this, right? After this. After what? Do you recall that John had just received the letters? I'm sorry, I accidentally clicked. He had just received the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Do you remember that? I, has, has the, have the pastors here ever preached a series on that? I remember I came once and preached a quick summary on those seven letters to the seven churches. Every one of those churches was having a hard time. Every one of those churches was struggling and they were facing opposition and difficulty both from outside in the surrounding culture and within their own church, within their own lives. It was not easy to be the people of God in the time where John was in exile seeing this vision. It was not easy to be a Christian. Does that sound a little bit like today? Where it's so hard to be the church because the world around us doesn't particularly have a high view of the church. And even inside the church, there's just tension everywhere, division everywhere. It is not an easy time to be the church. What encouragement they must have drawn, what encouragement John must have drawn from this fresh vision of the throne room of God where there was no division there was no question about who was in control, where things were headed. He was given a vision of a reality that exists even now, right here, where God is victorious. He's seated on a throne. He is in control. I want to look at that vision and interact with just a few aspects of it that I hope will be meaningful for you, and, and not just in this moment, but will follow you home as you consider what it means to live as a Christian outside of church services. The first thing we notice is that God is central. God is central. In verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So the first thing that he sees as he crosses this dimensional portal to see this heavenly place is a throne, and everyone knows what a throne is. It's not just a chair, it's the chair. It's a symbol of something, of authority, control, power, rule. And the first thing he sees in this vision is a throne with someone seated on it. 
And over the course of the vision, it becomes very clear this figure is God. Here's why that matters. Because he had just been given seven messages from Jesus to seven churches in trouble. And in, in times of hardship, one of the things that most happens in, inside our souls is hardship creates a diminished or distorted view of God. Have you noticed that? When we're struggling, we really wrestle to maintain a healthy and honest and true view of who God is. Sometimes it's a diminished view. It starts to feel like God is far away <clears throat> or absent. Sometimes it's a distorted view, like God is powerless or he just doesn't care. Maybe he cares about everyone except me. Why does everyone else get an easy life and I always struggle? In hardship, our view of God is immediately, directly affected by our situation, isn't it? You guys, you guys are allowed to like interact a little. <clears throat> you know, you could just say something, shout out. It's, I'm totally okay. You don't have to have good manners. When I struggle, it immediately affects my view of God, and I have to struggle and work at remembering who God is because hardship does a number on that. It always does. And some people aren't equipped to fight it, and they lose the fight. I've been reading all through the pandemic the rising number of pastors, according to Barna survey results, that are very seriously thinking about quitting. And I'm not just talking about quitting their church, talking about quitting ministry, doing something else for a living. Do you know what that percentage is? And I think this is low compared to most, most guys won't even verbalize what they're feeling if they're in ministry because of the guilt and the pressure. The number right now stands at 41%. That's shocking. 41% of pastors want to call it quits. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I've felt glimmers of that from time to time. It's not fun to be pastoring anymore. It's not what it used to be. It is a struggle almost every day. And you know what? I'm thinking if the pastors are feeling that, can you imagine what the people in the pews are going through? It's our job to sit in an office and read the Bible and think about God all day long. I can't imagine how discouraging it is to not be in ministry. And if that's the numbers right now, I, I think more than ever, the church of Jesus needs a fresh view of the throne room of heaven. Of this idea that our God is not losing anything. He's not perplexed. He's not confused. He's not discouraged. He remains firmly seated on a throne, and he reigns. It's so easy to forget that because we live in this broken world full of trouble, and we're wondering, is anyone watching this place? Is anyone in charge? And the resounding answer from John's vision is yes, God has never stopped being in charge. He has never once worried that history will not conclude the way he said it would. When you look further at this vision, Revelation 4.4, it says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. We don't know who these are, but around this central throne where God is seated are 24 
what we might call box seats or, you know, what do you call the, the best seats in the house, right? And isn't it just the way that all of, all of life seems to be is there are always people who are a little more inside than everyone else. And scholars have debated for centuries who these 24 elders were. It's, good, it's probably best to conclude they're humans. I think, based on the best scholarship I could read, that they are the most prominent human beings who ever lived and followed God. The 24, this is the hall of fame of all time. And I want you to pause and think about that. Who makes it onto that list? I got to imagine Peter, maybe Moses, Abraham, David. But who's sitting in those 24 chairs? I, I once went through a, a year of reading the Bible, trying to write down the names. I had 24 blank spots. And as I read through the whole Bible, I'm like, maybe this guy. But I know this. If I walked into a room and I saw 24 chairs with the most prominent God followers that ever lived, I'd be awestruck. I wouldn't know what to say. I could spend five years just going from throne to throne, talking to them, listening to the stories. Back in 2009, I had this weird experience. I still have no idea how I got to this meeting, but I was, in, I was uh, invited to an invitation-only pastor's gathering for about 100 pastors uh, in Dallas. And as I sat down, I had no idea what this was going to be. I just showed up at this one place in Dallas, 100 other pastors. Almost every one of these guys was famous. I sat at a table with guys like Erwin McManus and Francis Chan and these guys who like, whose books I'm reading, whose podcasts I now listen to. Just at my table alone, these men collectively pastored almost 60,000 people. And there was me. I'm like, I, I have no idea. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I'm not sure what I was doing in that room. But I was starstruck. I was just staring around the room going, look at these guys. And these are just dudes. They're just pastors. I say these names. You guys are like, I don't know who that is. You probably know the name of the most prominent chemist or accountant in the country. I don't know who that is either. Every industry has their superstars. I was starstruck. This is how readily we are moved to awe by our fellow human beings. They're just people. They're special people. They're accomplished people, but they're just people. And yet we are awestruck. You continue on with this vision. And here are this hall of fame of the 24 most amazing people that ever lived. And then you read on. From the throne came flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing these are the seven spirits of god also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal the room itself is pretty epic because john first sees the throne and then he sees the other thrones then he looks up and he realizes he's in a cavernous room revelation 5:11 says that in this room all at once are 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That might be figurative, if code for a whole lot, or it might be literal. If it's literal, do you know what 10,000 times 10,000 is, math majors? It's 100 million. So at the very least, I don't know if you've ever been in a space like this, we're talking about a room that holds 100 million beings. That's why ancient scholars always thought that angels were microscopic. <laughs> How many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Because you can't imagine any room big enough to hold 100 million anything. That's the size of us. 
On top of that, in ancient language, John is trying to describe this light and sound show he's being treated to where there's rumbles of thunder and, and flashes of lightning. There are lamps just lighting up the place that look like the spirits of God. If that wasn't enough, you move on to verse 6, and it says, In the center around the throne were four living creatures, maybe God's pets. I don't know what these things are. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, bear in mind, this is a vision, so we don't have to take everything so literally. But I'll tell you, if I saw this, I don't know that I'd be able to look away from these four creatures. I could spend an entire day just staring at one. I might even be tempted to worship some of them. They are so alien to me. All that to say that in this giant throne room, there's no shortage of spectacle to draw your eye and grab your attention. And yet, in this massive room with the hall of fame of most important people, the most unbelievable creatures, and all the multitudes, there's only one focal point. The entire space is arranged, facing, focused on one place, and that is the throne of God. Does that describe your consciousness or your posture most days? Because I can tell you, even though I am a professional pastor, if I don't have some time each morning to recalibrate, I have no guarantee that that will be my posture at all. This world is full of spectacle and distraction. There's no shortage of things to look at, 90% of them not worth looking at. Have you ever spent an hour staring at YouTube? Have you ever been on the toilet looking at your phone and realized your butt fell asleep because you've just been sitting there? You're done with your business and you've been looking at your phone? There's no shortage of stuff to draw our eye, to distract us, to occupy us. But in the throne room of heaven, there's only one focal point, and he's the only focal point that actually produces life. I once had the privilege of going to Dubai, and that's like a crazy city. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's like a city full of skyscrapers. And I want you to think about this. There's lots of skyscrapers, and that's, a, that's like an air quote term, but in Dubai, they literally scrape the sky, okay? In Dubai, look at the number of skyscrapers that actually break the cloud layer. That's impressive right there. But then there's this one. Even among this towering, this is almost like the throne room figure, like 24 buildings that break above the clouds, and then there's the Burj Khalifa. I spent the money to go to the top. I saw the curvature of the earth. It was the craziest experience. And this is such a good visual metaphor for me of how it's supposed to be because in this world of ours, there are so many problems, so many voices, so many trends that seem so big. We talk about them, we form entire shows, YouTube channels, podcasts, discussing this issue, and it all seems so worthy of our entire obsession and focus, and they all seem so critically important, so unbelievably high and tall, and then there's this God who goes, it's all important, but don't you ever forget who sits above it all. 
You lose sight of that God, and all you see is problems and people, projections, passions. And our world will be divided beyond repair if that's all we see. God is central. And every now and then, we need a fresh vision that reminds us he is greater than I ever dared imagine. Our God keeps shrinking because the world wants him to be small. We want him to be small. How big is your God? How central is that God? Is your God able to be ignored? I don't think the answer then is to say sorry or feel bad. It is to say, God, I beg you, if you are actually God, how can I possibly ignore you? Show me a fresh vision of how great you are, because otherwise I'll assume that I am great or that this world is great, and I will forget that God is great. Second thing to note from this vision is that God is holy. And this is where you might now prepare to take your quick nap, or if this is a movie, this is where you go to the bathroom because you're like, duh, I know what's coming. Just hang with me for a second, okay, would you? Just hang with me for one second. Follow this through. In heaven, day and night, at least in this moment, in this present state of heaven, day and night, they never stop saying, and this is a song being sung in heaven. It's what we just sang. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That word holy means totally other, set apart, transcendent, perfectly pure, untouched by evil. The kind of white that is blinding, the kind of different that is incomprehensible. That is what holy means. It doesn't just mean like you did a pretty good job or you're a really nice person or you didn't swear or things like that. It, it means something very different than that. It's at a level that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. And what's interesting is that the holiness of God is often lost because we spend most of our time measuring ourselves against one another. And it's very easy to come out on top when you measure yourself against other people, <clears throat> especially when you're selective who you measure yourself against. I play pickleball. And when I want to feel bad, I come to Flick Park and play with the ICC people because I'm convinced no one here has jobs. You're just at Flick Park all day long. <laughs> and then when I want to feel good, I go to my home court and play with some beginning players, and I crush them. You feel good or bad depending on who you compare yourself with. Right? I lived in Tijuana, Mexico for about a month during seminary for an internship. I had a very interesting experience. We did a lot of ministry in the slums just outside of Tijuana. And there I was with my fake Rolex. <laughs> I bought it at some street vendor in Philadelphia. I had my little polo shirts and khaki shorts, and I looked like a little suburban dude. But where we lived, where we served, it was rough conditions. I was washing my body maybe once every four days. It was just really rough conditions. And even then, among the poor people we were ministering to, I looked like a millionaire to them. They kept asking me for money, assuming I had things. But then on the weekends, I would cross the border on foot and walk all the way to La Jolla, San Diego. 
long, long journey. And I get there, and I notice something. As I'm walking down the main shopping drag, mothers are pulling their kids closer to themselves. Some people crossed the street as they saw me coming. I'm like, what's going on? And then I caught my reflection in a store window. I'm like, oh, I look pretty rough, man. My face was dirty. I had all this raggedy facial hair. My hair was unkept. And I was wearing one of those pullovers that you get in Tijuana from the street vendors. And I realized, compared to the people in La Jolla, I look really different. And it was that kind of comparative frame of reference that I really thought about that day. When you compare yourself to other people, when you even compare yourself to yesterday you, it's not that hard to come out looking okay. But the holiness of God is a very important factor towards our self-image and self-awareness. Let me give you a quote from one of my favorite books called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may know a little bit about him. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship. He was a person of conscience, a Christian pastor who was imprisoned in a concentration camp for, for joining in a plot against Hitler. He was put to death days before that camp was liberated, but his writings endure as some of the deepest, richest words on what it truly means. And if a guy can write a book called The Cost of Discipleship, it's a guy who paid that cost. He wrote a book called Life Together about a sweet season of his life when he lived in deep community with some seminary students in a house. And they enjoyed the kind of New Testament Christian community we all long for, and he learned so many things from that experience. Listen to what he writes. Think about this. Why is it often easier for us to acknowledge our sins before God than before another believer? God is holy and without sin, a just judge of evil and an enemy of all disobedience. But another Christian is sinful as are we, knowing from personal experience the night of secret sin. Should we not find it easier to go to one another than to the holy God? But if that is not the case, we must ask ourselves whether we often have not been deluding ourselves about our confession of sin to God, whether we have not instead been confessing our sins to ourselves and also forgiving ourselves. That is powerful. You know how much easier it is to go, God, sorry, I did it again, and we tell him what we did in front of the perfect, holy, most high God, but then you go to a small group and, and the, the people go, does anyone want to confess any sins? And you're like, no. I'm not going to talk about that in front of you guys. Why are we more hesitant in front of fellow broken, dirty human beings, but so easily ready to admit our sin in front of a holy God? Yes, it's because God is more forgiving than those people might be. But think about your own hesitation and where it comes from. If we understood properly how holy God is, we would grieve over our sin just a little more seriously. We would stop saying, oops, I did it again. The Britney Spears Christianity, you know, oops, I did it again. Like, it's so casual. So casual. Like the way men wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. Turn on the water. <laughs> Isn't that how we do it, guys? Unless you're a medical doctor, you're not like scrubby. Right? That's how we are. If we really saw how holy God is, confession 
would force us to linger a moment and consider what we've done and why in front of this God who's holy, I don't want to be this person. He's worthy of better than this. I grieve over it. And I want better for myself because my God has paid a price to have better for me and from me. That makes it so much easier to own my sin in front of my fellow human beings, to actually engage in James's admonition to confess our sins to one another, to actually form community that's deep, honest, real, not fake. But you can't go there unless you've truly wrestled with your sin honestly in front of a holy God and walk away knowing rightly how to measure yourself. I got to end soon, so let me give you a last observation. Can you hang on with me for just a little longer? The last thing we see in this vision is that God is worthy. This God who stands taller than everything, who is the central point of focus, he is greater than everything else, he is holy, and he is worthy. The word worship, I was taught, is derived from an old English word that is a, a compound of two words, worth-ship. Really, worship is an expression in some profound and measurable way of the worth of something or someone. If you've ever seen footage of Elvis or Beatles concerts and, and they show the people in the front row, have you ever seen these photos? I should have brought some with me on my slide deck. I didn't, but... They're hilarious. <laughs> These people are losing their minds. And it's not like a staged rehearsed thing. It is just like apoplectic reaction to something. It is this uncontrolled response to this thing, this being you see, who moves you in such a profound way you're no longer self-conscious. You are just pouring out anything that will come out just to express to this person who doesn't even know you're there. Ah! I love you. And they're crying, which is the strangest. Why are you crying? But they're crying because it's so much emotion. It's just vomiting out of them. Like their soul is just emptying itself. That's worship. It's a way of saying, I'm not just going to give you gestures. This is not just, uh, hi. You know, you know, like some people, they hug you. My son came home for the weekend. When he came home, I could tell he was in a weird place. He needed something. Normally when I hug him, it's like this, hey, dad, and we do the dude thing, tap, tap. This time, he wouldn't let go of me, almost to the point I got uncomfortable because we were holding each other, and he just wouldn't let go, and so I just leaned into it. It's that, that that's worship, and I'm not saying he worshiped me. I mean, that's the heart of worship. It's not a controlled gesture, a I'll sing, I'll kind of clap, and, but it's this effusive, I see you, and this is what's coming out of me. I need you to know I see you, and you're worth everything. You are worth everything. I felt deeply connected to my son Thursday night because of that embrace. And at first I was like, okay, but then as I leaned into it, it was, how do you put it? Like that's an honest exchange. It's not the formal greeting. It's one heart needing another heart and just letting it out. 
no longer worried about how this looks or what it feels like. In this vision, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 all-stars fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Listen to what they do. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You know, for these elders, the thrones they sat on, the position they enjoyed in the room, and the crowns on their head, these are the only things that distinguish them from all the other hundreds of millions of creatures in heaven. This is what they work for. This is what their lives amount to do. This is their acknowledgement and recognition. Their distinctive identity. I'm one of the 24. What are you? And in front of God, <clears throat> deeply moved by who they see, unprompted, they step off the throne that symbolizes their great achievement, their rank and status. They take from their heads their crowns and they lay them at his feet to say, you are worthy. I'm not going to stand behind everything I worked hard for and say, I don't have to do that because I know who I am. This is true self-knowledge, that you know who you are in front of God, not in front of other people. That your wealth, your education, your accomplishments, yes, you have worked harder than everyone else. You deserve the zip code you live in because you merited it. And when you compare yourself to other people, it's easy to believe that I am actually different than everyone, better than everyone. That is not self-awareness. No one's saying you didn't work hard or that they could work harder. All of that is true, but that is not the same as self-awareness. Self-awareness is to know yourself not measured against other humans, but in front of the living God who made you and know your worth and his in comparison. I get so blessed when I see someone at our church who is the global vice president of a Fortune 500 company, just a week before I had come from the bell ringing store a celebration on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And he's driving our trailer at seven in the morning to set up for service. I get blessed by that because he's not so aware of who he is, but he's serving God. He's just serving God. That day, he's not global vice president of Jack. He's a child of God and his servant. That, to me, is true self-knowledge. Here's the great news. These 24 all-stars are not the only ones who are going to have a crown. When you look at Scripture, there are multiple reminders that those who are faithful, and by the way, not like today, just for signing up, you get the trophy. Those who are faithful to the end of the game, they will get a crown. I don't think we should give out trophies for starting. <laughs> we should give out trophies for finishing. Starting's easy. Finishing is hard, isn't it? I'm an Enneagram 7. I love starting things. 
and then giving them to Steve to finish. <laughs> James 1, verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2.10, be faithful even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. 1 Peter 5.4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Do you know that enduring and holding on to your faith during hardship is not easy? Quitting is the easiest thing. It's so tempting to just go, I'm done. We have language for that today. I'm done. Drop the mic, walk away. I'm out of here. It's so tempting. Do you know that it is way easier to disown Christ than to be killed for him? And 1 Peter 5.4 is written to under-shepherds, anyone who bears spiritual responsibility for another. It's not just pastors. It's the youth group teacher who will stay up all night at a lock-in with young kids, barely able to stay awake. If you've ever been a small group leader, if you've ever taken responsibility for the spiritual well-being of anyone else, you know how hard that is. How easy it is to dream about quitting, to wonder when am I going to be done with this. And for those who finish, do you realize how hard-earned those crowns are? What they symbolized in real hours and sweat equity. Not a single one of those crowns on our heads will be cheap. They will be gained through deep commitment. They are going to become for us our measures of who we were in this life. And along with the other 24 elders, it will be our privilege to take those designators, those achievements off of our own heads because we've worn them all through life showing everyone, look where I live, look what I drive, look how I dress, look where I vacation. Every day of our lives, we're, we're distancing ourselves from others, positioning ourselves and saying, because I worked hard, I have all this. I'm different from you. But on that day, none of it will matter. We will all be like cockroaches arguing about whose antenna is longer. And then the lights come on. And we see the giant human. And we're like, we're all roaches. And we run. The great equalizer is the being so much greater than all of us, we stop being attentive to how different I am from you. And we just look at him and we're, we're deeply humbled. That's what God is after. And in symbol, in recognition of that truth, we will take that crown off of our heads, one of the hardest things to do if you're not looking at God. Why would I ever stop being dis dis you know, distinguished from everyone else? I, I worked hard for this. This was that youth group lock and where I wanted to sleep, and these kids were in, and you're like, and here it is, and I love them well, and I'm going to take that off. And instead of saying it was worth it, that's not what we'll say. We will, we will look at him and we will say, you are worthy. I didn't do this for an outcome. I didn't just do this for other people. If you've ever raised children, you know that it's not an exercise in gratitude, is it? Your kids don't every day go, hey, just want to thank you for providing insurance and a home and food and drive. Come on, 
who are you kidding? Tim's like, I, I have every right to just be comfortable and you do all the hard stuff. And then when they're older, they'll be bitter too, just like us. <laughs> if we do things for other people, you're never going to make it to the end, man. Nobody cares. They're not that thankful. You'll still do it, but you have to remember who you're doing it for. On that day, as we're taking off our crowns, the crown won't be, con- it won't be compensation. It'll be a confirmation that I always did this for you. And it was worth it because you are worthy. And we'll lay that crown down and we'll remember all the hard times. But you know what else I think? I think we'll also remember all the times we took the easy way out. All the times we felt that prick on our conscience and ignored it. All the times we just quit. And on that day, we'll wish we had seen in life what we are seeing in that moment. If I could only see how worthy God is, it wouldn't have been so hard to make the better choice time and time again. John's vision is just that for us. He's showing us something that is always true. And we don't have to wait until the life to come to see it. We can see it now. Every choice you make on earth echoes in heaven. A lot of them are hard to make, but they're worth it because he's worthy. Let me finish this way. God's word tells us that we are the body of Christ, the church, 24-7. Right now, it's easy to see that because we're together in this building, in, in a building called the church. We are the church. But we're the church even when we're scattered to our own lives. When it's just you in your office, you are the church. How do you see God in that place? Because only 5% of your waking life is spent in church gathered. 95% of your life is spent in the church scattered. Does God follow you into that life? This vision can be one of those ways that God penetrates the fog of your daily reality. To say, eyes on me. Everything else is so easy to look at, but look at me and I will calibrate your vision. To know God is holy will change the way that we interact with ourselves and our own fallenness and sin. It'll remind us that this God we're confessing to is the kind of clean that makes us feel dirty by comparison. He is a clean so different, and I want to grieve just a bit more over what I've done and not return to this place anymore. And to see his worth now will energize the hard choices you will need to make that will earn you that crown you will one day lay at his feet. 